Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Thank you to the Northwest Arkansas Land Trust for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Conservation organizations play an important role in supporting local farms and food efforts nationwide. In the heart of the Ozarks, this land trust is taking land access for farmers one step further where they're offering affordable land leases. You can learn more about the program and the farm location by contacting 479-966-4666. Information is online at www.nwafarmlink.org. That is nwafarmlink.org. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today my guest is Adam Martin of Bee Kept Farm in Middle Tennessee. Along with his wife, Leslie, Adam got into beekeeping with the traditional beekeeping methods. After an unsuccessful first year, they decided to think outside the box and shifted their beekeeping to more natural and sustainable methods. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. So give us a little bit of a background of how did you get started in the bee world? Well, uh, so we got to go back to the beginning of our homesteading adventure. Uh, Leslie and I uh, moved from California back in 2018 to greener pastures in Middle Tennessee. So we're recovering Californians. Mm -hmm. And when we landed here, we immediately started looking for a piece of property uh, that we could uh, homestead on and just start raising our own food and uh, living a more agrarian, simple lifestyle. Uh, we were fortunate enough to to get debt free when we left California, so we wanted mm-hmm. to pay cash for a a piece of property and get going. So we found our little gold nugget out in the middle of the country. We're south of Columbia, Tennessee, and uh, we're about fifteen minutes from town, just out in the sticks, and uh, it's rolling hills and beautiful. And the first thing we did when we got here was we ordered chickens. Uh, we went and bought a Great Pyrenees uh, Livestock Guardian dog the next day, and then I ordered honeybees. And mm-hmm. uh, the reason why we ordered bees is because we consume honey every day. Uh, I've been eating peanut butter and honey sandwiches since I was knee-high to a grasshopper, and we put honey in our coffee and in our tea every morning. And so just for the, you know, um, growing our own, we just, we wanted to do honey. It was one of those things that we wanted to do. So as soon as we got going, um, as soon as I got into bees, I just fell in love with them. And uh, I told my wife, I, I don't know what it'll take or what I got to do to make this happen, but I want to be a beekeeper for the rest of my life. And uh, I kind of like to make money doing it, you know? So uh, we just, I just threw myself in head over heels um, and just learned everything I could as fast as I could. Uh, I did all the the orthodox conventional uh, things that you're going to do right up front. You're going to get a mentor. You're going to go to some bee classes, join the local bee club, read a book, watch some videos and order some bees, get some vertical bee boxes and just do all the things. And uh, the bee club tells you if you're lucky in the first season, you'll lose half your bees. Well, I did better than that. I lost uh, eight out of nine colonies my first winter. Okay. So and that must have been disappointing. Uh, it was devastating, and uh, I know that you're. Uh, I know that you're. 
you know, you focus a lot on how to survive and how to make money, how to thrive, you know, doing the the homesteading and farming thing. And, you know, I wanted to, like I said, I wanted to do this full time. And I thought for sure, you know, I'd do better than that. Um, and I was definitely devastated. But at the same time, I was learning some things as I was going. Um, I was learning, I learned right off the bat about swarm catching and that you could catch feral swarms right in your own backyard uh, anywhere and everywhere. If you've got bees in your neighborhood, honeybees, you have an opportunity to catch swarms off of those bees every single spring naturally. And come to find out those are actually better bees than the bees that you can buy. And so uh, I got hooked on that real quick. And the one colony that survived that first winter was actually a feral swarm that I caught that very first spring. So the three packages of bees that I ordered, those all perished in the first winter. And uh, so my, my return on my money was uh, not good at all. Uh, mm -hmm. But my return on those feral bees was really good. Since, yes. I had, since I had zero money into those bees, uh, all I did was put together a trap, put it up in a tree stand and, and caught a feral swarm and they survived. So that pretty much had me sold on that right away. And then I started learning some more that first year or two about uh, just bees in nature. And uh, it didn't make sense to me to feed bees sugar water. And I had a friend of mine that we were on the same path at the same time. And we were just thinking outside of the box. Uh, I say outside of the bee box and just the things that are being taught in conventional uh, orthodox beekeeping across the Western world, uh, they don't, they really don't lend to sustainable and they're definitely not natural or more natural, as I like to say, uh, beekeeping methods. And one of those things is feeding your bees sugar water. Uh, it is perfectly normal for beekeepers across the Western world to feed their bees sugar water all of the time and harvest the honey all of the time therefore you know basically they're never letting their bees have their own honey and what they're actually selling as a product to other people uh, is a product that they like to call funny honey and uh, there's some ways to mitigate that uh, but in general i believe that the hobbyists are not very good at that and they end up selling basically recycled sugar water as honey to consumers and the honey industry is unregulated, which I'm a big fan of unregulation. Uh, but at the end of the day, people really have no idea what they're getting when they're getting honey. And so that's one of the things that I switched right away that I didn't believe feeding sugar water was good for bees. I know it's not good for me. And I, it just didn't make sense to me. Um, and then also, when you look at sustainability... Uh, you know, we had supply chain issues not that long ago. And I remember beekeepers posting that they're running to Walmart and Kroger to buy up all the white sugar in order to feed their bees. And uh, I did not do that. I didn't need to do that because I leave my bees plenty of honey. Uh, they're never going to run out. Uh, and I have all the honey I need. And so that goes to that sustainability part of my beekeeping method. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's back up a little bit here. You talked about capturing feral swarms. Now, do you have a chance of getting uh, mean bees with that, or do you find that they generally behave themselves? So in general, the bees that we catch across, you know, North America, a lot of them are Italian bees, or that's their uh, main bloodline or species that they come from. And that's okay. because that's the majority of the bees that we import. Or, or that we uh, breed in America. 
and they by and large are gentle bees or more docile bees. Um, so the bees that you catch in the wild are pretty much naturally going to be a mutt bee or some mixed variety of that Italian bee. Uh, so the, the bees that I catch here, they're, they are mild and docile. Uh, I teach classes on a regular basis and we get into the bees all the time and, uh, I'm teaching homeschool kids and stuff and I pull frames out with bees on them. I've got lots of pictures on my website of that. And I have kids come walking up and take a taste of real raw honey straight from the frame with bees crawling around on it. And we don't have issues for the most part. We don't have any bees come out. And I, I teach ahead of time what to do if a bee comes out and has a look at you to, to not get stung. So all that to say, I don't find that the bees that we catch, uh, the feral bees, that they're any more wild or, you know, aggressive than any mm -hmm. other bee. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Cause that's something we've had issues with and I'm not sure. I think it came from a swarm, but what we discovered too is that the bees were running a flight path and they were running into people practically. They just don't have, I guess, very good eyesight. Um, and uh, yeah, we were having people getting stung and chased and they were literally a hundred yards from the bees. Oh, that's not good at all. Yeah. Um there's different, you know, I, I tell everybody that you need to leave bees about a 10 foot, no walk zone out in front of their hive. Um, so going out a hundred feet or a hundred yards, there's something going on there with those bees and there's different things that can happen. And also different times of the year, um, where bees uh -huh. can get more aggressive specifically during the dearth. And that's where there's no nectar or pollen to be gotten out in the wild in the middle of summer, everything dries up. And the bees become very protective of their honey, number one. And then number two, they just seem like they're, they're aggressively looking for a, a food source. Um, and so that's where I find that I can have some aggressive bees certain times of the year. Yeah, so this was uh, super early in the year. So probably when there was very little out there for them to get. Okay. And what they did was just turn the hives around. So they had to fly up and over the hive and out. And that solved the problem completely. Interesting. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So we were able to do that, but we were always wondering if it was the type of bee, which was more, you know, aggressive or, you know, you never know. Sure. So, yeah. So talk to us a little bit about this. All right. So you're using feral bees and what other things are you doing? Um, and you're not using sugar. Um, what other things are you doing to make these bees thrive? So one of the things that I found out in that first year, you know, after I'd already started with the vertical hives, was I found out about horizontal hive beekeeping, and that is a more European um, style of beekeeping. It's been as it's been around just as long as as the vertical boxes that we find here in the West. Um, but the the horizontal hives, number one, they're made out of two by construction, um, and I mean you can make them out of whatever you want. I'm actually having them made now. Uh, I use the Amish to make all the boxes that I sell. They're making them out of two by true two inch thick uh cedar wood and okay. if you think about intelligent design which i'm a huge fan of uh bees are meant to be in a hollowed out tree 15 feet up off the ground out in the middle of the woods well if you think about the sidewalls on that tree uh that hollowed out tree those sidewalls are really thick number one uh and they're every bit of two inches thick if not even thicker possibly Number two, mm -hmm. the hollowed out tree that the hollow, usually at least the trees that I found bees in, it goes all the way down to the soil at the base of that tree inside. 
And the temperature of that soil actually regulates the temperature inside of that colony. In the summertime, it keeps it cool because that soil is most likely no warmer than 55 degrees. And in the wintertime, right. it keeps them warm because that soil is no colder than 55 degrees. Um, but all that to say the horizontal hives being made out of two by construction uh, have thicker sidewalls on them, which the farther north you go, the more important that is. Uh, and that's just a better, it's just better insulation for the bees during the winter time. Everybody knows that you really don't have anything until you've got a colony that you've overwintered. Uh, so you can have bees doing great in the spring, right in the middle of summer, going good in the fall. But until they get through the winter, you know, you really don't have anything. And so I have found that the bees thrive in those horizontal hives with the two by construction. Um, and I really do believe that's because they're able to overwinter better. The, the next thing that I talk to people about with respect to horizontal hives is that you're only moving one frame at a time out of the hive. You're only, you know, you're only removing one frame at a time. Whereas when you go to do an inspection on a vertical hive, you've got to split boxes. Uh, mm. It's extremely disruptive and invasive. Uh, when you do an inspection on a hive like that, you're basically tearing apart their house and then you're putting it back together. Whenever you do that, they, well, first of all, if you're doing it by yourself, or even if you have somebody running a smoker for you, a lot of times you smash bees. Um, that will make bees very aggressive right then and there. And I honestly believe that they've got PTSD and that the next time you come back into that yard, they recognize that you were a predator that came and actually hurt their hive the last time you were here. And therefore they're more aggressive. Um, and so when you're just removing one frame at a time to pull honey or to do a hive inspection and then replacing it and putting it all back together, I mean, you basically don't have anything to put back together. You just slide the frames back together, close it up and walk away. Uh, it's much less invasive. It's much easier on you. It's much easier on the bees. And at the end of the day, it's uh, everybody wins. Mm hmm. Okay, that's very interesting, and I can I can see that because I know that animals and um, even insects can actually learn behaviors, and so if you think about that PSTD, that makes a lot of sense, and uh, so that when they would smell smoke or they would sense you in the bee yard that you are now the enemy, right? Yeah, very interesting. Okay, so you're experimenting with that now with that style of a bee um, hive. How do you harvest honey? So it's the same. It's pretty much the same. Uh, basically, bees order their hive in a horizontal hive. They'll order the hive to where they've got the brood nest, which is the baby bees and the larva and the queen are all right at the entrance. And then the brood nest is always bookended, meaning there's a frame on either end of it that's resource frames. And those resource frames have pollen, nectar, and honey on them. And then outside of that bookended, you know, brood nest is where the excess honey is stored. And so I know when I go to look at one of my horizontal hives, I know where the entrance is. Therefore, I know where the brood nest is. And so I know right where to go to take a look at the honey. And it's uh, I'm using two different frame styles on the Langstroth, which is the Western, you know, American style frame. Uh, the calculation on what to leave the bees is a two to one ratio. So every two frames of bees that I have, I will leave one frame of capped honey. 
And those, uh, those horizontal hides are all deep frames. So when I say Langstroth frames, I'm, I'm saying Langstroth deep frames. There's no medium okay. shallows in there. Um, on my lands hive, it's actually much easier. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with lands. Uh, it's, it's the European style frame that George Lands came up with. He was a Frenchman about the same time as our, our Langstroth. And he developed a different frame style that actually more, more closely mimics what bees build out in nature in trees. And it's actually taller than it is wider. So I know this is going to be a little hard to imagine, but basically your Langstroth frame is wider than it is taller. Mm -hmm. So the bees are really good at, in those taller frames, what they do is they store a honey rainbow, a four to five inch rainbow at the top of the frame that is over the brood, which are the, the eggs and the baby bees down below. And that four to five inch honey rainbow is actually enough honey for the bees on that frame to survive that winter. So there's no two to one, there's no math, there's no figuring anything out. They actually have enough honey on that brood frame to survive the winter. And so anything outside of the brood nest, you can take as far as honey goes. Interesting. Okay, all right, that's fascinating. And so then let's say um, you're harvesting that and then I'm assuming you would have still to separate it from the the uh, the wax. Now, with that, do you you probably don't heat it, or you heat it very minimally? Uh, I don't heat any of my honey. I try to okay. harvest honey when uh, when we're we're having warm warm temperatures. If I happen to have as heart or have to harvest like right in the middle of winter because I lose a colony or something like that, I will uh, I'll heat up. A, I've got a kind of a honey room. And I'll heat it up in there and try to get up to 80 degrees or, you know, 75 degrees in that room before I go in there to harvest the honey. Uh, in cool temperatures, the honey just does not want to come out of the cells. And we have spinners, you know, the the um, extractors. Yes. And uh, I use wire reinforcement in all of my frames. So the comb is reinforced. Um, so I, I'm able to extract it for the most part without losing the comb. And then if I do use the comb, of course, my wife's uh, busy making all kinds of things with the wax. And so it's not uh, it's no big deal to to lose combs here and there and harvest that wax. Mm, gotcha. So let's talk about the pesticide side of this, because I know there's things like mites and all these other invasives, which are a challenge for beekeepers. And you don't treat for that. So talk to us a little bit about how you manage those different uh, challenges. Yeah. So I am treatment free. Um, you know, the, the start of really with natural sustainable beekeeping to get to that treatment free spot. First you go back and you go, okay, I'm going to get feral bees. Feral bees are hardier bees. They're better bees than I can buy. The reason is, is because they have acclimated right here in middle Tennessee. They're used to the temperatures, they're used mm -hmm. to the summers, they're used to the winters, they're used to the, the food sources, the nectar sources, they're used to the pests right here. So they're actually a better bee than I can buy. So if I start right there, I'm already on the right path. Next thing, if I don't feed sugar water, I'm not driving down their immunity. I really honestly believe that sugar water drives down their immunity. And in my common sense, if you think about it, sugar is glucose and that's it. That's all it's in sugar. Nectar has got glucose, sucrose, 
uh, I always forget the third one. It's not dextrose. Fructose. Fructose, mm. glucose, and sutrose. Plus, it has essential minerals and vitamins that they're getting out of the flowers. It's got salts, uh, and it's got proteins in it. So all of those things, if I'm feeding my bees real honey that comes from the nectar of flowers, that's a superfood that's making them even more healthy. So then when we fast forward to varroa mites, I don't worry about varroa mites. If my bees are not healthy enough to handle varroa mites, which are a bee tick, basically, then those are not the kind of bees that I want to propagate and have. Um, it's just like our cows, our pigs, our chickens on our farm. We, we won't get tough or die animals. And if they can't deal with their own pests and they need me to prop them up, um, then that's a problem for me. If they can't birth their own calves, if they can't, you know, birth their own piglets, um, that's a problem for me uh, on our farm as far as sustainability and, and being as natural as we can. So when it comes to the bees, uh, all those things I really believe lend to having healthier bees that don't need to be treated. Um, and then the last thing I'll say, there's a lot of science out there on the varroa mites targeting bigger bees. You're going to have to track mm. with me for a second here. Uh, so it's known across the bee industry that varroa might target bigger bees, uh, specifically drone bees. But the bigger the worker bee is, the more that worker bee is going to have a problem with varroa mites. Well, if you let your bees build natural comb and you let them, you let the queen lay eggs in that natural comb and birth out bees in that natural comb, the bee size is actually going to be smaller than what industry standards give you when it comes to wax foundation or plastic foundation. You can order small cell foundation from Europe, and there's some places now around America that are selling it, but by and large, that's not what people are getting. And they don't even know it, but what they're doing is they're growing bigger bees, which are going to have more of a problem with varroa mites. Uh, also, every single time that a baby bee is born out of a cell, the cell actually gets smaller and smaller and smaller by a microscopic amount. If you were to cut a piece of comb, a cell sideways and look at it under a microscope, an old comb, it would look like tree rings on the edge of the cell. So if your cell size over time is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, guess what you're not having a problem with? Varroa mites. You're having mm. less and less a problem with varroa mites. Okay. Okay. Very interesting. Now I know there's some other things like foul brood and that sort of thing, but I'm assuming because you're raising healthy bees that you just don't seem to have as much of an issue with that. I have never had an issue with that so far, knock on wood. Okay. Um, I've never actually heard of anybody in my area in Middle Tennessee having a problem with it. That's not to say that there haven't been people out there that I don't know about. Mm -hmm. But in general, I know quite a few beekeepers in my area. And to my knowledge, nobody has ever had an issue here with American fowl brood or European fowl brood. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So tell us a little bit about your business then. So we've kind of talked about the bees, talked about how you raise them. Uh, how do you uh, make money off your bees? Yeah. So it's been a, a slow evolving process. Uh, you know, obviously the number one thing, if you want to make money with bees is selling honey. Um, it's interesting because, well, first of all, my wife and I use quite a bit of our honey. Um, I've been averaging 
probably about 10 to 15 colonies of bees over the winter that I've survived. Okay. Um, so that's, that's quite a bit of honey, 10 or 15 colonies of bees, but I'm not feeding them any sugar water. So therefore I'm very conservative with what I take. Um, but I teach and I teach homeschool classes. I teach, I'm teaching at uh, Homesteaders of America this year. I taught there last year. I'm teaching on school of traditional skills and I'm just, I'm teaching a lot and I'm educating people on honey. And when I do that, people realize I'm red pilling them, so to speak. Um, they realize that they want the honey that I'm selling or that somebody like me is selling. They want to make sure that they're not getting something that is funny honey or recycled yes. sugar water. Um, you know, so I sell my honey. I'm very proud of my honey. And I tell people that straight up front. And people jump at the opportunity to buy my honey for a premium price. Um, so there's money in honey, obviously. Uh, but then I really found uh, in 2020, I launched my my business, Bee Kept, at the very beginning. And with the intent of basically teaching people how to do what I do, going to their property, advising them on how to do what I do, keeping bees naturally and sustainably, and then offering, you know, a full service beekeeping uh, business to where I could go to their property. If they don't want to ever touch bees, mm -hmm. I can catch swarms on their property, put them in their forever homes on their property, harvest honey uh, when it comes time. And basically they're completely hands off and I'm offering a service to them that they know they have bees. They get the benefits of having honey. They get the benefits of pollination, all of that. And um, so I launched that business in 2020. Um, my cousin talked me into, and he's got some, he's, he's fairly business savvy. He told me to try doing what I was going to do with, uh, three basically pilots, you know, three trials. And so what I did was I got a hold of three different families that were close to us and hit them up and just said, Hey, look, this is what I want to do. I want to get a lot of content and photos and video and, you know, just capture your story as we go. And, you know, have you guys participate in this and basically launch my business on this. And so it was very successful. I had a lot of fun doing it, um, but it just started changing forms as we went. And what I found was uh, there's there's good money to be made teaching and especially teaching what I'm teaching. There's very, very few out there that are teaching natural, sustainable beekeeping. And so I have a little niche there. Uh, and then also with the homeschool kids, they're always looking to get out and do things. And as soon as a homeschool group found out about me, they started promoting it on Facebook. Next thing you know, I've got homeschool groups from all over Middle Tennessee calling me up trying to book classes. And so and then having me come to their schools when they have their um, uh, what do they call them? Tutorials or they have gotcha. a class yeah. day, mm -hmm. uh, once a week. And so I've been doing that a lot. And then I started a Be Kept Boot Camp where I teach somebody like you that's interested in doing what I'm doing or a fellow homesteader, farmer, anybody. Um, I teach a four and a half hour boot camp and I teach everything I do from A to Z and we get hands on bees. I show everything, um, you know, and we they get hands on bees. They get to pull frames out. And we just do it all. And, and that's, those classes have been booked up. Um, mm -hmm. So we've really kind of found that the, that's been the moneymaker, uh, honestly, on our little farm here 
has been the uh, classes and, and keeping those booked out. It's pretty seasonal because obviously uh, come December, January, probably won't be uh, good times to do this. Uh, but, you know, uh, early spring, all through the summer and fall, it's just wide open. So um, that's what we're doing. We set up a, a, a website and we've got Facebook, Instagram, and the website's been done really well. And people can get in there. They can see different dates that are available and they can book their class. And uh, it's it's been great. Very cool. Corinna, what is your tip for today? Today's marketing tip is your product creates a transformation for your client. So you must position your product as the solution. So do you know what it is? Do you know what that transformation of your product is? And if you do, hopefully you do, talk about it a lot. <laughs> so it's not just vegetables that we're selling. We're not just selling fuel or calories as farmers. We're, we're selling something else that the client wants. I like to talk about this metaphor of these two cliffs with a giant canyon in the middle, right? This big gap. And you have your customer over on one side and they want to get over to the other side of the cliff, but they can't because there's this big gap, right? And that gap represents the transformation that they want. Um, and if it's a really big life change that's hard to get um, and your product is the way to get across, like you're going to help them get over to the other side, then they're going to grab onto that and they're going to say, I want that thing. So we want to try and cast vision for what is it like over there on the other side? What is this product going to do for you? How's your life going to change? How's it going to be better? And really tell very specific stories about what that looks like to try and help people see their future story could be different. Mm. So with this too, transformation is part of the uh, experience too. And I'm sure that you're then also using this in your social proof. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Once you hear from your customers and they tell you, this is what this product did for me, you can then use that in your social media as social proof. You can have it on your reviews and you can point to this and say, this is what happens when people buy this product or when people get involved in my farm business. And it will cause another person who's thinking about buying that thing. It removes the risk, right? It says, well, if it happened to all those people, it'll probably happen to me. Absolutely. If you want more farm marketing tips like this, check out my top rated weekly show, the My Digital Farmer podcast. I teach marketing concepts and interview lots of farmers to find out what's working and not working in farm marketing to help you find more customers, increase your sales, and build a strong brand for your farm. Look for the My Digital Farmer podcast on your favorite podcast app. Now on your homestead um, or farm, do you have other enterprises? It sounds like you have some animals. Yeah, so we milk cows every morning. Uh, I'm the milker, and we've got uh, four dairy cows on our farm right now. Uh, two are in milk, two are heavy bred. Uh, mm -hmm. Should be in milk soon. We, we're selling A1 and A2 milk. Well, we've got a PMA, actually. We went to uh, Rogue. That's where we got to meet you uh, earlier this year here in Tennessee. And uh, we set up a, a private membership association for the goods and services that comes from our farm. Mm -hmm. And so we, uh, we rent milk jars that happen to be full of uh, beautiful, fresh milk. And so that is definitely, I love, I mean, that's, uh, that's our cash money every morning, right? Mm -hmm. I go out there and uh, after an hour, hour and a half, whatever it is, after cleanup and everything, 
um, you know, we, we were making money. So it's fun to start the day like that, knowing that you're, you're making money. And then we're raising, uh, we're raising some beef offsite. We've got some free leases where we've got cows growing, um, grass fed, grass finished, you know, all natural. We're raising some pigs. Um, we're kind of trying to get out of that a little bit, but we'll continue to raise. Basically we'll keep one breeding sow and have her bred every, every winter. And uh, that way we're only feeding one hog over the winter because that can get expensive and, uh, and then keeping ourselves in meat and selling off the uh, excess or selling the feeder piglets in the spring. And then we're doing meat chickens. Um, you know, meat chickens is quick and dirty, uh, raising these Cornishes out in the, out, you know, on pasture, we, uh, we butcher them at like nine or 10 weeks and, uh, people line up to buy them at four seventy five a pound. So, um, dollars and cents wise, they make, they make really good sense to, uh, to raise, you know, several batches of meat chickens. Yes. And then my wife's actually, uh, we've got some friends over the hill that actually, uh, Justin and Claire Phelan, he, he's the one that did our website and, uh, he's really talented at that. Uh, he basically, that's what he does for his daytime job. He's got some companies, online companies, but long story short, they're homesteaders as well. And, uh, Claire and my wife have, are, are launching, um, kind of a new little line. It, it's going to end up being their own little business together. Uh, but they're using a lot of the, uh, the bee wax products to make all kinds of stuff, salves and, you know, different things. And they're going to be launching that here actually in the next couple of weeks. And so I think that that's going to be a really nice little side hustle for them, uh, on some products that are coming off our farm with, with little inputs really, um, Mm. just their time and they have fun doing it together. So, um, but people line up for that kind of stuff, the, the facial care products, salves, um, you know, different things made with beeswax, beeswax. And, uh, that's pretty cool. Very cool. Yeah, that's awesome. So let's go back to the bees here. Um, you've got the Langstrong long and then the Layens hives. Have you seen between the two, which would you say the bees prefer? So it's really more, well, I guess it's both of us. I prefer, I believe that the best, um, is lands. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bees, more natural. Yeah. Because of the comb size is more natural. Um, the bees, when I get into them, they are, they act like I'm not there. They really honestly do. Um, I get into bee, I get people into these bees all the time and, uh, people just can't, can't even believe it. Um, in the Langstroth long, it's a really good go between. And so, you know, I definitely am not a fan of the vertical hives for all the reasons I already listed. Yes. Um, the, the, the Langstroth long is a really, really good way to get in between a horizontal hive with the traditional Western style frame, you know, um, UPS is showing up, so we might have a little background noise for a second. Uh, but you know, if I had, and that's what I, that's what I let people know, because one of the benefits to going with Langstroth and the Langstroth long is that the frames are readily available. Um, You can get the frames anywhere and everywhere. Um, and then also the extractors are, are readily available. Whereas lands, the extractors are a little more hard to get to and they are a little more pricey. Mm. Um, 
so that's that's kind of the big negative on the lands is just the uh, extractor and the priciness of the extractor. Gotcha. So there are people making extractors, but they're not as common. Are they more of a European extractor? Correct, because okay. it's so because it's so popular in Europe. Uh, it's gaining popularity here, and there are people selling them here. Um, so it, it's possible, but uh, it, you know, it just. It, it, they're just not as readily available. You can't just run down to tractor supply and get you an extractor for 120 bucks, you know? Correct, correct, gotcha. Okay, now let's go back to the feral bees because that's something you're trapping. Do you have like specific bee traps that you set out to try to keep these new uh, forms of hives coming in? Yeah, so, you know, again, I'm having the Amish make a lot of what I'm doing, but you can make a swarm trap off of... Uh, scrap wood and that's in fact what i did with my very first swarm trap is i was able to uh i just used scrap wood from around my property and built a box that would fit the frames that i had so okay. that's kind of the critical thing is to get to use the frames that you have inside of the box um and have it full of frames when okay. the when the feral when you catch the feral bees they're going to go in there and they're going to set up home and you're going to leave them alone for about 10 days you're not going to touch them and then at the 10 day mark, that is when you want to remove them and, and put them in their forever home. Um, one thing that you'll learn with bees is that you can move them within 15 feet or you've got to move them more than three miles. Otherwise, they they won't be able to reset. And so what I mean by that is if I move a hive right now today, 20 feet, all of the forager bees will basically get lost and they won't be able to overcome that 20 feet and find their hive but if i move the hive 15 feet they can overcome that distance in the day so gotcha. what i suggest is that people catch bees where they want to keep bees that way you don't have to fool around with resetting the bees um so i'll catch them in a tree i pick a tree on my property i put a swarm trap up in that tree um there's a gentleman by the name of thomas seeley who's widely known in the bee world um he's a uh he, he basically geeked out on, on bees and nature, and he wrote a book called Honeybee Democracy. And he basically summed up his findings on one page, which is, which is great for us um, that aren't readers. Uh, but he, he was able to tell people what bees prefer in nature. And so when it comes to swarm trapping, it's actually very beneficial. Um, they prefer 15 feet over three feet off the ground. Now, it's not to say you can't catch bees three feet off the ground in a swarm trap. It's to say that they prefer 15 feet over three feet. So I tell people, you know, set your swarm trap as high as you possibly can within reason. I don't want anybody killing themselves setting a swarm trap. Um, I have deer stands on my property for hunting, which make it extremely easy for me to get traps up 12 to 15 feet up off the ground. Oh, that's simple. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I'm not using them during the spring. So um, what you want to do is you want to have your swarm traps baited and ready to go by uh, the first day of spring. I mean, as soon as those first blossoms start to erupt on the silver maple trees here in Tennessee, which is about March 1st for me, uh, I'm going to make sure that all my swarm traps are baited and hung and ready to go. Uh, and, and, and what you know, are you baiting with? Lemongrass essential oil. Uh, there is okay, also yeah. a... Yeah, that and you just want to go a little bit inside and you can go big on the outside. 
Um, so on, you know, on the inside, I use these little uh, scent release lures. Okay. And it, it basically the lemongrass leaches out of those for months. And so I never have to go back and rebate the swarm traps. Um, I just check on them, make sure, you know, see if there's any bees coming and going. And if not, I move on. Um, and then as soon as there's bees, as soon as I recognize that there's definitely bees that have moved in there, at that point, I can start the clock on the 10 days. Okay. Um, and then when I say go big on the outside, um, I learned that you can go really big on the outside and attract swarms from a long ways away. So what I do is I soak toothpicks in lemongrass essential oil, and I'll put those in the bark of the tree, or I'll put them um, underneath the lid of the swarm trap. Um, I'll do some things like that, as long as it's on the outside of the trap. Um, bees have 200 times our sense of smell, and so you don't want to overpower them inside of the swarm trap. Okay, okay, gotcha. Now, what, you said the 15-foot rule. Let's say you want to move them a little further than that. Can you do it in multiple steps, like maybe 10 feet, and then sometime later another 10 feet? You absolutely can. You can do it incrementally, and uh, and I have done that and had had clients and customers that have done that. Okay. And so, and so you can definitely do that. Okay. Interesting. Move them, move them 10 or 15 feet, leave them for probably a week or two, and then move them another 10 or 15 feet. Gotcha. What would you say the biggest question people have when they come to your classes is? Wow. You blindsided me with that one. Um, you know, one thing that people ask a lot is what can I plant uh, for bees or do I plant something for my honeybees, you know, so that they have plenty of nectar and, and, you know, to, to encourage bees, honeybees. Um, I tell people just basically, if you can, uh, if you could seed your, all your grass, wherever you're growing grass, if you could throw in some white clover seed, um, white clover is, you know, it starts blooming early and it blooms really late into the spring and it's a great nectar source for the bees. And so I see that as, as really one of those things that you could, you could do really easily. A lot of people will seed. Uh, it's funny because tons of people think that, you know, clover is a, is a weed, of course. Um, but I, you know, for the honeybees, clover's great. Um, I encourage the kids when they come over here for homeschool classes to grab those, uh, seed pods that are sticking up out of the dandelions and to kick them and blow them and do all the things that I was told not to do when I was a kid. And, uh, the bees love the dandelion flowers. They get lots of nectar out of those. So I would say that's kind of the number one thing that people ask. Um, you know, when you go to Lowe's, Home Depot, you know, the, the local plant shops, they usually have a tag on the plant that'll say if it's a pollinator friendly and, uh, you know, you can just look on there and if honeybees like it, then that would be something that I would consider, uh, planting also late bloomers, things that'll bloom like here in Tennessee, I'm looking for things that are going to bloom in June, July, when we are having a dearth and there's nothing out there to get. If I have some of those late bloomers, then the bees will cover those up and they won't run out of a nectar source and, and go, go to their ways of getting aggressive and getting defensive, you know? Correct. Yeah. We've been really surprised by the super early willows and all the pollen that the bees go nuts over them. I, I got oh, some yeah. video I should send you of literally, I think it's February, late February here, where the willows are starting to go nuts and the bees are just covering them. Wow. I would like to see that here. Uh, here it's the silver maples are kind of the first yeah. thing. 
Um, so that would be cool to see. I'd like to see that. Yeah. And the nice thing about willows is they're so fast to establish. So by within one year, you can have a good crop of, of uh, cactus for the bees. Yeah, that's awesome. So anyway, but yeah. She, she planted some willow trees now that I think about it right off here to my left. And uh, they are uh, growing, but uh, I'm going to tell her about that. Yeah, I wonder what type she grew, started. Not sure. Yeah. So that is very cool. So I with uh, I'm just trying to think late crop for them as well. Uh, what do you have any specific species that you recommend for late honey blooms or just late, late food sources? So the one, uh, the ones that I bought and planted, they're called a uh, chaseberry or vitex bush. Uh huh. Um, yes. It, they look like a butterfly bush, uh, purple flowers, and they do bloom really late. They're, they're summer bloomers. In fact, they'll just keep blooming. Um, so I, it's funny because we have such, well, this summer was wet this entire summer down here in middle Tennessee, and we really never had a dearth. Um, send it our way. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's crazy. I, I tell people that a hundred miles North of here, it's dry hundred miles South of here. It's hot and humid and, uh, we're, we're in a little honey hole right here and we really love it, but yeah, we, uh, you know, I planted all those Vitex bushes and they're growing like crazy. They're, they're really pretty to look at. Um, they're seeds you can actually grind up and use, uh, for pepper. Um, but then also, uh, it's an herb too. Yeah, it is. Um, it's uh women will use it for a uh estrogen mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh so it's uh i've actually done a little research and uh people sell it on ebay and i've thought about i because they produce a ton of seeds i've really thought about harvesting those seeds and selling them on ebay interesting yeah or etsy but um yeah, so that's one of the bushes. I mean, I would just I would uh, just do some research and find out what late poll pollinators um, would work in your area. And uh, that's what I would kind of focus my attention on if I was going to plant something specifically for bees. And I know, you know, not everybody lives in a place like I live as far as how, you know, just how much there is for the bees to get a hold of. So I would definitely uh, look into those things. If you want to get bees, um, just take a look at some of the the good nectar sources that you could possibly plant for them. Yeah, we've had success with, we will try to do some cover crops when we have space in the farm fields and we'll do a, typically a cocktail. So we'll do a couple clovers, we'll do sunflowers, we'll do cow peas. And yeah. it's amazing to see the, the bees on that. Uh, buckwheat, they love the buckwheat. Although, uh, have you had any success with actually getting buckwheat honey? Have you ever tried that? You know what? Out where we grew up, we grew up in Bakersfield, California, and uh, we could get buckwheat honey out there a lot. That that was that was a lot of what you could get. Interesting. Uh, so yeah, we had we had it, but I've never uh, messed with it out here. Yeah, because we back in New York, we had oh, 20, 30 hives, and we grew an entire fourteen acre field of buckwheat, and we were so excited because you know we were gonna have buckwheat honey. Yeah. Well, that honey was just as 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 uh, clear and looked just like spring honey. So I don't know if we grew the wrong type of buckwheat honey, or they don't really like buckwheat, and there's other things available to go after it. But yeah. for some reason, we and again, I just don't know what we did wrong. But yeah. it was just interesting to see. You know, we opened those hives right up, and <laughs> it was very yeah. disappointing. Yeah, I uh, I let people know this that be, you know bees will go to the best nectar source at the moment, 
Mm. um, all year long. And so inside of their three mile radius, basically. So, you know, I have blueberry bushes and I I'm telling you, I very rarely, if ever see a honeybee on my blueberry bushes, which are 50 feet from where most of my hives are. And that's because I'm not there when that's the best nectar source at the moment, or there's some other pollinators pollinating it and the bees are on something else. That's the better nectar source. So that could have happened with your buckwheat to where they're just, there's something else out there that they love and that they're going after and they're basically leaving your buckwheat alone. Well, that's, that, there's a good point of that because obviously we would always grow like a lot of clover in other areas. And I know bees love clover as well as within that three miles. I know there were a tremendous amount of alfalfa fields as well as natural hay fields, which had even more clover. So if they do prefer that over the buckwheat, they probably wouldn't have been on the buckwheat that much. There you go. You had used some pure clover honey. We did. <laughs> yes, it was definitely clover honey. Yeah. Well, Adam, thank you so much for your time today. Do you have anything else to like share with the audience before we go? I know your website is bekept.com. Yeah, that's the, uh, they can get in there and sign up for a free email. Uh, we've got all our class information on there. Classes coming up. You can book your class. We've got a store there, hats, shirts, hive tools, different things. Um, and then our big thing that's coming up um, that's really neat is we filmed a uh, online class. Basically, it's that bee kept boot camp I talked about. Um, we filmed it online, and it's going to be available through School of uh, Traditional Skills coming up in October. And so we're really excited about it. Uh, people can get on that you know, on our website, and they can click the link and uh, get in there and take a look. And that school offers uh, loads of classes on all kinds of different things. Uh, when it comes to homesteading. So um, that's a big thing. We're going to be at Homesteaders of America in October. Looking forward to that. So if uh, any of your listeners are there, tell them to make sure they stop by and say hey to us. Uh, And I think that's about it. We're just excited for what the future holds. And uh, we sure appreciate you having us on today. And uh, we, uh, we just look forward to things to come, good things to come. So that's it. All right. Well, thank you, Adam. So excited for what you guys are doing with uh, making it better honey. Well, helping the bees make better honey, I guess, is what it is. Um, But yeah, yes, that's always exciting to see. You know, when I grew, when we started farming 15 years ago, there was always that, you know, people losing 50 percent, 60 percent. You couldn't do it naturally. I'm excited to see people that are out there that are making it work and uh, showing us the way forward. So, again, thanks for your work. You bet. I appreciate it. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer Podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.